So we are here for Passage to Prophet, the Inventors Show. Today is March 25th, 2020, and we are in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and so we are doing this by Zoom. And we are in the Gearheart Law Conference room. Nobody else is here. The employees have all been dismissed. All practicing proper social distancing. Yeah, Richard and I are even... <laughs> so um, Richard and I have a couple things to say real quick, and then we'll get started with Dave. Sure. Welcome to Passage to Profit. The Inventor Show. That's right. And we're all here talking about intellectual property and what that means to businesses and entrepreneurs. And we have a fantastic show lined up for you this afternoon. Right. And if you need a patent, trademark, or copyright, Richard is the guy to go to. Yes, and right now we're at our office, our home away from home, and normally <laughs> we're recording in the iHeart Studios, but in honor of the coronavirus quarantine, we decided that we were going to follow uh, the government guidelines and uh, do the show from our uh, lovely conference room. So, And we hope that when we do get back into the iHeart Studios that you can all come back on there. We're going to do IP in the news now. So the IP news is that the Patent Office, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, is open for business as usual and running. That's right, which is uh, not surprising since most of all of the examiners at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office work remotely. And so they've been doing this for a long time. It's really pretty entertaining. Sometimes you hear the dogs barking in the background as they're arguing with you over claim construction, but um, in fact, uh, the patent office is operating and all of their statutory deadlines are still in place. Um, they may give some people a little bit of slack because, uh, from the coronavirus, but they're not make, suspending operations or making major changes. Right, so if you guys are working on any IP stuff, <laughs> make sure you keep it going. <laughs> so another IP in the news, I found there was a copyright issue where North Carolina took somebody's image that they had developed themselves and used it, and the court, the national court ruled that they had the right to do that. Or I think they ruled that they couldn't really rule on it. So North Carolina is still in a state of confusion. Yeah, so they're using it. So the, the, poor, the poor person who owns the copyright, I think, has to go a little higher up or to the right court or something. I guess they need to make an appeal. So that's known as a copyright conundrum, right? Yes. And um, frequently happens in the law with intellectual property. Uh, they need to go through the court system to get the, get the rights straightened out. And I guess in this case... Um, uh, the, the infringement wasn't really clear, and so uh, South Carolina gets to keep using this uh, infringing subject matter. So, so enough about that. Uh, so, Dave, Dave Carvajal is here. Hey, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Dave. Yeah, thanks so for having me. We're going to chat about what you're doing now, what you've done in the past, and uh, advice you have for entrepreneurs. Well, you know, look, uh, I had the good fortune of being involved with some companies that had some pretty good success early on. Uh, so my first company, we took public. It was a $1.2 billion market cap. Uh, and then you might remember 9-11 happened. Uh, very kind of eerily similar to, to what's going on right now. Um, but we, had, we managed to continue to grow the business. In the 90s, uh, you know, there were many internet companies. There were two companies that uh, really kind of broke out. Uh, one of them sold to Google. That was a company called DoubleClick. 
uh, and the other was Hot Jobs, which we sold to, uh, at the time, it was the number one internet media company on the entire planet, and that was Yahoo. Uh, and, um, you know, we had reached out to Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo was, was starving for growth after 9-11, uh, and we had so much momentum, um, you know, we continued to grow that business. We had grown the business 500% every single year for five years in a row. Uh, and managed to get it up to 125 million in revenues. That's amazing. Uh, so, how did you grow a business 500 percent per year? I, I don't think I've ever heard that statistic in my uh, in my career. So, what was your what was your secret? Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great point um, because I think that's exactly right. The only thing that I've heard grow faster. Uh, was Pfizer had the drug Viagra, and in one year, they went from zero to 500. Well, no explanation necessary there. <laughs> um, you know, for us, there was an incredible amount of disruptive change, right? Um, back, if you'll remember, back the way people looked for jobs was through these things called newspapers. And the Help Wanted ads would come out, and they were this thick. Uh, right. And, you know, what would happen is, uh, you, you know, all of the HR directors around the country on Fridays would post a local help wanted ad in the newspapers and they would fill up their fax machine if they remembered to fill up their fax machine both with ink and with paper on monday morning they'd have a stack of resumes and that was pretty much how hr was being done in you know in the mid 90s um we we actually weren't the ones to invent it there were 150 companies out there already doing online recruitment we were actually working as headhunters as recruiters at the top recruiting firm in new york city at the time, you, you know, but in the 90s, New York City tech meant only one thing, and that was finance. And so, you know, I was pulling the guy out of Merrill Lynch who had developed a fixed income trading desk using C++, Unix, and Sybase. And it was only because a week earlier, the Jay Aaron's group at Goldman Sachs had asked us for a VP of fixed income trading technology. So doing that kind of horse trading all day, every day in the mid-90s, it hit me that this internet thing was just going to change everything. And so, you know, as fate would have it, uh, or fortune, or, or, you know, good luck, um, the guy who started that recruiting firm who had asked me to join was also the same guy that asked me to leave the company. I was fortunate that he did. And so we ended up leaving to start hotjobs.com. And, um, you know, what we realized very quickly, we were going to completely disrupt the way people were doing their job in HR departments all over the country, right? From moving from fax machines. And, and you'll remember back in the 90s, to have an internet connection, it was a 14K modem. And that thing would screech and make an awful sound. I remember that, yeah. You know, AOL, you take, have mail, right? <laughs> right, you know, and it would literally take like six seconds for the page to load, right? So, so we realized that this was the future and everything was going to change. But the problem was that the person who was in Mississippi doing her job in the HR department, it was literally going to take 28 phone calls to convince her to use this thing called the internet to do her job in a way that was more efficient. And those 28 phone calls we realized could be done over the course of nine months or they could be done over the course of two weeks. And uh, as soon as we made that realization, um, you know, we sat down and we made a pact that I would hire two salespeople for every one non-revenue producer. So, and, and, and I was the guy that actually presented that to the executive team. And, and then uh, I, I proceeded to go out and hire the first 500 people at Hot Jobs. I opened eight offices around the country. And, and that's how we had 500% revenue growth every single year. Wow. 
So that's really interesting because I think sort of the prevailing sales strategy for a lot of startups today is just to rely on social media and hope that you can position your product uh, in the right way and that cold calls and uh, calling on prospective customers is sort of a strategy of the past. The idea now seems to be, well, we're just going to put it out there. We're going to position it right. We're going to get some snazzy marketing. We're going to target the right audience, and the sales are going to come. But your growth actually came in part through uh, obviously having a good product, but also having boots and leather on the ground, so to speak, uh, reaching out to prospective clients and getting them to sign up. Yeah. Uh, very um, different from the way a lot of internet entrepreneurs work today. So, um, yeah, you know, it's funny because we come across um, there. There are really kind of two uh, large categories that internet companies fall into. They're either consumer internet, or they're B two B enterprise SaaS businesses, software as a service. Right. Uh, I do think that uh, you know social media has been in, an inc you know incredibly powerful at helping people form those initial connections and build relationships. And so I do think that social media is a very powerful tool for helping particularly drive consumer internet businesses where you don't, you're not really going to have one-on-one -on -one salespeople per se, but on the other side where it's B2B enterprise SaaS software, I still see a, a great demand for very strong top-notch enterprise salespeople. That's yeah. And I think that's a, a, an accurate way to do it, but for hot jobs, I guess it was B2B in the sense that you were trying to connect with HR departments rather than job applicants, for example. Well, yeah, th th there are some unique uh, companies that are called marketplaces or two-sided networks. And, and we, in fact, were, two, you know, the, the, some of the terminology that's used today, uh, it just was, it's different today than it was back then. Back then, we called it thin client technology or browser-based technology, right? Today, um, you know, it's SaaS uh, enterprise. Um, and so, but we were very much a two-sided network. On the one side, we were direct to consumer to the job seekers. And on the other side, we were a B2B enterprise solution to manage your internal HR recruiting process. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you a question, Dave? Did you have to get the employees first or the HR departments first? Or did you try to do that simultaneously? How did you get the site populated? Yeah, great. It's a great question, right? Because that, that's exactly... Uh, the thing that you have to make sure of in a two-sided network is you have to have a, a fair amount of balance on both sides. Uh, and so what we did is, um, you know, in 1998, uh, we were that company. We, we actually ended, ended up getting uh, about $25 million worth of PR and press because we did this thing that was kind of revolutionary at the time is we did a Super Bowl commercial, but it was absolutely brilliant because January is the biggest job search of the, of the year. It's the biggest, um, you, you know, everyone's got New Year resolutions and, and brand new corporate budgets. And so it was absolutely brilliant. But we did a Super Bowl ad and had a whole branding campaign on the direct-to-consumer side. Uh, and on the other side, on the enterprise side, we had an, uh, uh, a very strong um, sales force and enterprise sales teams that would aggressively go after these large accounts, these large deals, you know, companies like, Cisco and Microsoft, we would sign up, you know, multi-hundred dollar uh, deal packages. Wow. Well, that's great. Yeah. So, so what would you tell consumers and, well, entrepreneurs, maybe people that 
I've been seeing on LinkedIn and Facebook a lot, people are saying, I just lost my job. What can I do online to make money right now? Is there any advice you would give them? Yes. Hire smart from the start. So, you know, I, I took 20, 20 plus years of distilled wisdom in uh, working and helping build billion dollar businesses to really figure out how the greatest companies on the planet hire the best people. And that's what's inside of this book. Um, you, you know, there are really two big reasons why anyone will succeed or fail at any company. And the first is by far more important than the second reason. It's, it's, uh, it's responsible for about 60% of the reason why anyone succeeds or fails at any company has everything to do with whether their personal DNA matches the cultural DNA of the organization. The second reason, which is about 20% of the reason why someone will succeed or fail at any company in any role, has to do with their hard skills, their technical chops. Can they actually be successful and effective in the role? In my, you know, and so, so what I talk about is, is, look, we've got to get it right on both of those things. The advice that I have for every job seeker out, look, it is a massively disruptive, tumultuous time right now. And, and we see this about every 10 years, right? We saw it after 9-11. We saw it again in the credit crisis in, in 2008, 2009. Uh, and here we are, you, you know, after um, an unprecedented bull run on the economy and, and the stock market. And so now, uh, you, you know, for a while, some people have been talking about a correction coming and, and so forth. But, um, you, you know, like it or not, he, here's where we are. And I think it's going to force a lot of people and a lot of companies to really kind of rethink their purpose, rethink you know, where they're going and, and who they want to be. Uh, and I think that some of that internal reflection is some of the best work that, that an individual or person can do. Uh, and also, you know, really kind of figure out and learn how the greatest companies out there do the best hiring, right? Be, because I can tell you that um, th th there's a whole lot of pain still coming, you, you know, both from the health crisis of this, this coronavirus but also, um, you know, as the economic reality starts to hit companies, you know, which has already been happening for the past couple of weeks, uh, but it's going to continue to snowball, um, you know, there's going to be an incredible amount of pressure on companies to strengthen their balance sheets and, and um, you know, really focus on operating cash flow. Uh, and yeah. so, unfortunately, that's going to mean a lot of layoffs. And, and um, I think that people have to immediately engage if they get laid off, their new job is to get a job. And the best thing they can do is learn and grow and move in the direction of their greater purpose. But first, they've got to figure out what that purpose is. Uh, and so, um, you, you know, I would ask everyone out there to consider, uh, and it's not just this book, you, you know, but there are a lot of great books out there. But this book can help you figure out, you know, how the greatest companies go about thinking and hiring the best people. I think that's great advice. Yeah, absolutely. I, Excellent. So what are some of the principles that companies that are good hirers engage in to, uh, to, to, to find people that are technically competent and a good fit? So on page 97 of my book, uh, <laughs> I, page 97 is the blueprint. The, the, first and foremost, uh, the first thing they do is they create absolute clarity on one page on what the ideal hire looks like. And, you know, when you think about all of the great achievements of humanity, all of the great works, 
always started out as a blueprint. Anything of lasting value always starts out on a blueprint. And so uh, first and foremost, what the greatest companies do is they create that clarity through a blueprint. And, and conversely, this is what I also say that people need to do for themselves as individuals in figuring out their purpose. And so my blueprint from a company's perspective is basically a one pager. It's got three parts, a top, a middle, and a bottom part. The top part is all about the company and the company's core values, the mission and the culture of the organization. The middle part is about the role and we create clarity around the strategic priorities. What are the top three, four, or five strategic priorities for the executive team? That's the North Star. Every executive conversation should begin and end with the outcomes, the strategic priorities in mind, right? I'm a big believer in start with the outcomes and reverse engineer, right? So we create clarity on, on the strategic priorities. Secondly, what are the success factors to achieve those strategic priorities? What does success look like for this executive, whether it's a chief technology officer, CFO, or, or chief marketing officer? And then thirdly, what are the core competencies necessary to be successful in that role, right? Uh, and so we get clarity on the company, the role, and then the bottom is the candidate. What are the three to five nice-to-haves and what are the three must-haves? And that gets you kind of like a one-pager. Uh, first and foremost, what companies do to do great hiring is they create that clarity versus the opposite, which a lot of CEOs do, especially um, first-time CEOs or CEOs that are early in their career, is they do this thing called wing it. They use their gut. <laughs> and I say, don't do that. Because the truth is the that- The wing it strategy. <laughs> the wing it strategy. You know, look, recruiting is fundamentally about human relationships, right? And the data that we have on the most profound, intimate of human relationships is that about half the marriages will fail. Recruiting is no different unless you get strategic and, and more sophisticated, create that clarity on one pager. Only then can you achieve 90% or better in your recruitment and your hiring processes. That's awesome. So if somebody looking for a job is using this page, they could fill it out the same way and then look for a company that has the same values they have. How would you know that? that that's exactly right. Look, uh, I think that a, you know, a person creating that blueprint for, for themselves is going to move them in the direction of that purpose, right? Like now they actually have a destination and a roadmap. Okay. So can you bring that up during an interview? Say I wanted to go, I work at Gerhard Law, so I'm not going to do this, but let's say I wanted to go work at a different firm. Could I bring up what are your core values or would they really frown on that? Oh, look, I think absolutely. I think, um, you know, look, my, my mom said, my, my mom told me this growing up. Um, you know, she'd always say this. You can say anything to anyone as long as you have a smile on your face. So, you know, look, <laughs> <laughs> interviewing is a lot like dating. It has to be two-sided. It's mutual. It's a process of discovery and figuring out if this is going to be a fit for both of us. Right. So, so you feel like employers are open to those kind of really value questions. And I, I think that we kind of try to get at that here at Gearheart Law. I'm usually the soft interviewer talking about marketing and everything. I don't really worry about the technical skills. But I think that being a good match for the climate is really important. I don't think you're going to be successful if you're not. 
Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I would absolutely reinforce that. And uh, certainly when we do our hiring, we don't probably formalize it to the degree that Dave is recommending. And, but you know, should. But I, I, I do think that that's a, a very sensible uh, idea. And, um, but in, in fact, yeah, you're looking for fit and you're looking for competence. And you have to ask questions on both sides. And you have to be willing as an employer, be, be willing to reveal uh, quite a bit about your, your organization so that the applicant knows them for themselves whether uh, it's a good fit or not. And I think sometimes where the challenges come in is when an applicant wants a job, uh, they've got a mortgage to pay or they've got, and they, they kind of, you know, misrepresent themselves a little bit or maybe the the company hiring uh, thinks that this person is great on paper, and so maybe they oversell the position uh, a little bit. And every you know that first interview is a place where that's sort of like your first impression, right? And you carry those thoughts and impressions with you throughout the employment relationship. And uh, if it's not an accurate picture on either side then I think that can be the starting point for a lot of challenges down the road. So uh, it sounds to me like Dave's approach uh, at least tries to take some of those issues out of it from the beginning so that a good relationship can start. So, yeah. so what you would know, make a good first impression, Dave? When you look at all of the studies on human motivation and work, universally, the results come in looking something like this. Compensation is usually like number five or six. Number one, two, three, and four have everything to do with things like what are the core values of the organization? What does the company stand for? Who are the other people I'm going to get to work with? And, and what are their um, you know, culture and values like? Right? And, and so from a company perspective, I think that those are actually the things that attract people the most. Right? Secondly, you, you know, look, I, I think you, you, hit, you, you touched on something, Richard, that, that I think is absolutely valid, and it's the thing that we have to be prepared for when doing this thing called recruiting and hiring, and that is the fact that job seekers, candidates, have an active incentive to lie to you, to deceive, right? And so it's not about figuring out what are the perfect five silver bullet questions to ask them. Rather, it's about learning to have the right conversation, about learning to have a more sophisticated, nuanced understanding of who the person is across the table, right? And, and I think it has to do with really kind of learning how to not, not only read the emotional data, but to dig in deeper. You, you know, in one of the, on one of the pages in my book on, on the model, I have this, uh, this thing that the Japanese use. It's called the Hone model. And basically, it's the iceberg model. And the reality is that when you see an iceberg in the ocean, you know, only about 10% of it is sticking out of the water. But the large mass underneath the waterline, about 90% of that iceberg, is, is below the waterline that you, you, you'll never see, right? Yet, um, uh, that's where, like, the important information is, right? The top 10% is really about words, actions, behaviors. But when you're doing recruiting and hiring, you really want to get to the core of who they are 
which has everything to do with their values, their beliefs, and their motivations, right? Because when you can understand those things and hire for those kind of core values, then you're absolutely going to nail it, right? And you're going to build a team that, that is going to help you achieve your mission. I agree with that. So we've got a really great team right now at Gearheart Law, but it hasn't always been this way. We've had our share of, of uh, learning. Uh, so it, different organizations uh, have uh, sort of different levels of attractiveness. So I, I, I suppose if you're a computer programmer and you want a job at Google, um, there's lots of applicants for every opening, and they have all sorts of screening tests. But uh, entrepreneurs, lots of times, uh, don't have a reputation. They, they may not have the, the salaries. Um, and so the founder may, may not have so many options when it comes to hiring. They may not have an inbox full flooded of resumes. What? but you still have to find people that are going to work effectively in your team. So do you have any advice to entrepreneurs who are, are, are looking to hire people, but maybe they don't have 100 applicants for every job, and maybe it's not as, as easy to find a, you know, uh, a perfect fit? Yes, uh, it's a great question, and, and it happens all the time, right? Um, you know, look, I would say oftentimes, um, entrepreneurs are very capable at dealing with scarcity, dealing with kind of scarce resources and making something happen, right? Um, and, and, and in fact, what I would say is that the greatest resource an entrepreneur has is their resourcefulness, their, their psychology, right? Uh, and uh, I think it's very easy for entrepreneurs to convince themselves that they're at a very low state, a very low psychology state, a very low kind of uh, scarcity mode. And I would say, um, look, get out of that scarcity mode, think bigger, get clarity, right? First and foremost, don't think about, and, and one of the things I write about in my book, especially if you're with, in a company, in a business that's growing, um, you know, I, I often get brought in when the company is growing and, and they've experienced three to six months of pain already by not having this executive leader in place, right? And so, um, you, you know, this is kind of like what I call some of the uh, uh, pain, suffering, and brain damage that comes along with either having made a bad hire or not having the right person in place. And, and I think that's some of the gravitational pull that's keeping them at a low energy state, a low psychology state, I think the, one of the best things they can do is do this exact exercise on page 97, create that clarity, and now they'll have a target to hit. And then the second thing to your point is they're usually not seeing enough high-quality candidates that fit their blueprint. Rather, what they're doing is if they need to hire an accountant, they'll interview five accountants and hire the best one. The problem with that is that they still may only get 60% of what they need. Right, so I just think it's incredibly important to create that clarity on paper, on a blueprint. So now you actually have a clear understanding, a clear target of who you're looking to hire. 
So if you are an entrepreneur and you're ready to take on a partner, say you need a strategic partner, would you go to page 97 and both of you fill that oh. out and compare? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, look, I, you, know, you know, when I go in um, to, to, to a company and I work with them, you know, not only will we, um, you know, our results drive the success of a, a high quality executive hire, but we leave behind a whole methodology and a system and a way of thinking about their recruiting and hiring that they continue to use, you know, for, for the duration of their company. Um, I think uh, the reality is that excellence as a standard can be universally applied across every function and every role in every company, right? In other words, there's an A-plus player for every role in every company. You've just got to do the work to define that. Right? A lot of people think like, oh, this is just a customer service person. I don't need to hire somebody very, very good. And I would say that is absolutely not true. In fact, it's the opposite. Right? These people are going to be interfacing with your customers, your clients. You want them to be exactly the right kind of person, but you've got to define that in advance. And so I would say that um, the best thing a CEO can do is you know, create their organizational map for all of the roles they need to hire in the next six, 12 months. And then for every single one of those roles, do the work of creating a blueprint so that you can actually have clarity and make the best hire for that role for the team to achieve your mission. I'm wondering if the entrepreneurs could use this to attract investors. If, they, if, it, if it's really a deep dive into exactly why you're doing what you're doing, it could probably help them with investors because I think one thing investors look for, well, you were an investor, right? Uh, I think one thing they look for is the person leading the team, right? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, especially in the early stages of a company, you're not just investing uh, in the idea. You're inv investing, you know, the biggest risk with a startup, you know, at the seed level or the series A level is execution risk. Right? So can this person, can this team actually execute? Can they grow this business? Right. So I, I honestly, it sounds like I just, I want to do that myself just to see if I'm going in the right direction with what I'm doing now. Um, no, it sounds like great advice. Yeah. Um, do you mind if we open up uh, the, the discussion to other uh, participants on the call, see if they have any questions for, that for would Dave? Be great. Yeah. So uh, fire away if you have questions for Dave. So how does one comes about finding their purpose? That's good. <laughs> That's a good one. Thanks. You know, um, look, I, I walk clients uh, through something called the process of organizational self-determination. And, you know, um, I, I won't be able to do it here in this conversation because it's too long, but I'll, I'll give you just the first step. And I would say this. Do this mental exercise and actually write it down. Ten years from now, you know, write down the date, right? January 1st, 2030 or whatever, you know, ten years from now. What is it that you want to be true? And, and it depends on if you're doing this on a personal level or for your company. But let's say for the company, for the business, ten years from now, what is it, what is it that you want to be true about your business? And, you know, one of the higher faculties, one of the, the greater capacities of the human being that no other animal has is the ability to imagine, to dream, to fantasize. 
And I would, I would, I would ask you to do this exercise and do not hold back. Say to yourself, what is it that you want to be true 10 years from now about your business? It might look something like, you know, we want to make a certain amount of uh, revenue. We want it to be the number one player in this market, whether it's a, a product or category or territorial region, North America, you know, whatever it is, right? What is it that you want to be true about this business 10 years from now? And just write that down and then prioritize the top three things and make sure that that feels good inside. It doesn't have to be rational. It doesn't have to, do not apply a filter of, you know, reality or, um, you know, whatever. It just, it just has to be something that is a stretch that you can believe and even if you don't believe it, that you can almost believe. But don't be afraid to do that exercise. And I would say that that is one of the more powerful exercises you can do. And the reason that's important is because if you have, um, you know, one or two or three partners in your business or, you know, co-founders or, um, you know, C-level executives, and when they do that exercise around the business, you're going to find that they may not be on the same page. And it's really important to get everyone on the same page, to have the discourse and the conversation so that you can all arrive at the same place so that you then know where you're headed and, and the purpose of your company and where you're going. Perfect. I think that was wonderful. Thank you. I think in, uh, for time's sake, we should move on to Sasha, but we're all going to ask Sasha questions. So Sasha, can you give us your pitch about your wonderful headgear? Talk yes. about it for a couple minutes. Sure. Uh, so I started Color by Sasha about three years ago because I realized a lot of festival goers needed uh, very comfortable, lightweight headpieces to party and wear all night. And I decided to marry 3D printing with my creativity. And this is actually my very first prototype that I created. It's Kova, Kova Crown. And uh, I actually... It was inspired by my niece because I asked her, do you want to be a Tarita or do you want to be a queen? And she said Tarita. So I made a Tarita crown for her. <laughs> and when it came, I was like, oh my God, I'm in business. This is so comfortable, lightweight, and it's amazing. You know, people don't even think that they forget they're wearing one when they're wearing uh, a headpiece. I also want to show you something. So from a princess, I can transform into a warrior, for example. Wow. You know, and you turn sideways. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you custom make these for people, or do you just have certain designs that you make? I do custom make. I do custom make them sometimes, but I also create. I do. I love doing collaborations with other artists. So I create a variety of them, from edgy ones. Uh, I, I don't know if you can see some behind me too oh, yeah. from like edgy and male ones to really girly and princessy and feminine what are they made out so, of sasha so they these are laser like printed with laser it's laser melting plastic and it's all one piece and they're a little bit flexible so if you have a slightly larger head and you're wearing one it will stretch to fit your head really comfortably <laughs> so you, you sell a lot of these for Burning Man, right? 
Yes, so I went to Burning Man in 2011 and I loved it and it was just such a big celebration of life and self, you know, self-expression and creativity and just how much we as humanity, how much we can achieve if we really get present to our potential, to our greatness. And yes, a few years later, I came up with this idea because I'm also a marketer and I was just looking at all these people, they are creating you know, outfits and repurposing stuff and sewing and crafting and it was amazing, but it, it was, it's difficult to create something for a head that's not metal and that wouldn't fall, you know, the, you wouldn't get tired of wearing all night, for example. And I basically created, you know, created a solution for this, for the problem that I saw at the marketplace. Good for you. So Sasha, what is the vision for your business going forward? Uh, what would you like their business to be like uh, five years from now? Oh, well, I would like everybody to own my crowns in the world. <laughs> all, a crown in every home. Yes, and give presents <laughs> to how magnificent we are and how unique and special every human being is. And the mission of my company is uh, to, to help people get that, we, that they matter through creativity, self-expression, self self-discovery, and wearable art. That's wonderful. So do you encourage your, your, your customers, your clients to participate in the design? Yes. So the creative process goes as, for example, when somebody wants a headpiece, I don't tell them, hey, go online and show me other headpieces that you like. I tell them, show me an image of something that you like that represents you. It can be a picture of a food they ate or something that they like, a flower they like. So when I get the essence of that person, I can create a headpiece just for them. But it also goes to what Dave was talking about. It's realizing like kind of learning who you are and realizing your purpose and looking within as to really, you know, knowing yourself and getting rid of this, of all of the limiting beliefs or all of the things that we do for approval or to, to look good and just really be present and finding out, yeah, what you, what, what you are. I have a question. For Sasha that maybe Dave can help answer. Um, so <laughs> <Sure. laughs> so Sasha, <laughs> you had mentioned early early on in your pitch about how your product super serves like festivals and events and so on and so forth. How do you see with everything going on now with a lot of events and things being canceled? Um, how, how does that affect your bottom line? Um, and if it does, how, what are your, what's your strategy to kind of offset, um, you know, being codependent on those festivals? And if you don't have an answer, I was hoping that Dave might be able to chime in and give you some advice in that area. Thank you for that question. Well, of, of course, it affects my business because there's not actually gather, you know, there's no gatherings, physical gatherings happening. It's possible to sell to people that to wear at virtual parties, but I'm also thinking I have masks for a burning man because we, you know, we are protecting ourselves from the dust. It's very like small particle dust. 
and I could actually sell my sell the masks because people feel like they're more protected wearing them and, and they're fashionable mm -hmm. yes and they look cool <laughs> and um, protective we're actually designing with a team of uh, my colleagues we are designing a mask to protect my medical workers oh nice. yeah that's a great great strategy yeah yes. you, you, you know i might i might um in my humble opinion um uh, <laughs> you know i might um offer for this um sasha i love it it's a that's a great business like i think now more than ever the psychological state that and you know i mean this thing is global right i mean it's like worldwide every country everybody is dealing with this um i think that we're gonna look back and for some people and, and i think sasha fits into this category is we're going to look back and it was a blessing in disguise because what it's going to force us to do is an explosion of creativity. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so what I think what it's going to offer, Sasha, is the opportunity to really kind of dig deep and explore opportunities in how to create distribution models that maybe you wouldn't have thought of otherwise, right? I love this idea of virtual parties and, you know, more than anything, I think this is an incredible physical symbol that empowers people, right? Like I, I, I think you said something before, but you know, it makes you feel like a superhero, right? Now more than ever, people need that in their businesses. And, and so uh, I think it's an opportunity. I don't know that we'll figure it out in this conversation, but I think it's an opportunity to dig deep and really get specific. It may not be for everybody, but figuring out the channels that are going to be most where the most opportunity is and, and figure out how to exploit that, right? Peter Drucker said, you don't get rich by solving problems. You get rich by exploiting opportunities. And there are pockets of opportunity where, you know, I think uh, are going to be presented to you, Sasha, where, you know, you're going to be able to go deep. Um, you, you know, like, for example, I, I, uh, I know that there are some companies that are doing very, very well you know, in, in this situation, right? Um, and uh, other companies uh, are still trying to figure it out, but, but I think that uh, this, this idea around empowerment and celebrating people and heroism, right? I think there's gonna be an incredible amount of, um, you know, people that are gonna be viewed as heroes throughout this process, um, right. you know, and in the coming weeks. And I think celebrating those aspects could be a great way to, to think about things. Yeah, I was just going to jump in if I could and uh, point out, like, for what we're doing here as a first passage to profit um, teleconference, right? And so everybody has a different background, and so uh, to their to their picture, we have you know, and and that now there's going to be opportunities to define people's personal brands by the background that people see themselves. Uh, see other people in during these these video conferences, right? So it's another way to uh, exploit your personal brand or your company's brand, and then what you're wearing, headwear, clothing, all of those things become accentuated now because we're looking at people differently. We're looking at a uh, a, a zoom image of them, and so you know your creations. Uh, can help provide uh, brand distinction 
for you know and differentiation for different people and um, you know that's a that's a, a an interesting potential trend I think yeah I had an idea for you I don't know if this would work or not but okay when I was younger I played Dungeons and Dragons anybody else here have played Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> <laughs> I had two characters this is compassion <laughs> of a uh, of a geek right so <laughs> my alter egos I was a fighter and I was a magic user but uh, if there are online Dungeon and Dragons games. clubs, games, which I think that my daughter has played it, which I was shocked by, I didn't know it was still around. These headpieces would be perfect for those characters. You know what? Uh, if you could find something like that where people, you know, they, anyway. No, that's well, I think, I think he hasn't explored that already. I, I, just, I just want to jump in because uh, I think what's uh, also true, Elizabeth, is all of those people that played Dungeons and Dragons became enormous, enormous fans of Games of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah, I didn't. And I did I'm wondering not because... if, you know, I, I know for a fact that you can actually target people on Instagram, for example, that are fans of Game of Thrones or follow Game of Thrones or, you, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so, so I think that's a great, you know, uh, targeting those kind of people could be a great way to expand your distribution. Yeah. Yeah, maybe if you just... I'd piggyback onto that for a second about something. If you were to do that, Sasha, I think I would recommend making a second company. I think that just from looking at your website, it doesn't seem like that's the direction that you're going. Maybe you could make a spin-off company where you could produce products that are a little different from the mothership. So you differentiate your product lines and you don't steer too far away from what I can clearly see your, your passion is. But I think that they're right. I think that there is definitely a significant market slightly outside of what I see. That I, I see your product on all these models on your website. And I was thinking like Hollywood, and red carpet. But I think that everyone is right. Like there is definitely a bigger market out there. But I would just recommend maybe a slight differentiated product line. I got to tell you, there was a guy in the Dungeons and Dragons group who was making his own chain mail. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have been so much fun to be wearing those, playing that game back then. And the and yeah, Game of Thrones. You could get a Game of Thrones game together somehow. I don't know what what you would do, but you could start a group like that, and everybody buys your headpieces. Just a thought. I, maybe send maybe send some gifts to. Um... You know, both influencers and maybe some of the stars um, of the show or something, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing that, like, if if some movie star from the show does an Instagram wearing it, you know, you're gonna you're gonna you're not gonna be able to keep up with demand, right? The, the other That's thing, I, the other question I had is: there anything in the process in in the techniques of how you're doing these things that could be patented? Unfortunately, no. I looked into that. You can't get a design patent? I can get a copyright for the designs. But if somebody copies it, I don't think I'm going to, you know, sue them or pursue. I just, uh, yeah. By the time they copy it, I've already came up, come up with a new design. So how many can you make at a time? Are you making them yourself by hand on one of these? Like, I know it takes a whole day to print something 3D. Maybe that take, took two days, what you're wearing. Yes, this one takes at least a day because it, it cools off. It's very soft in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this, this printer is a million-dollar printer, so I don't own it. It's, it's at a factory in Queens. I use two factories, Queens and Maryland. And, yeah, it depends on so you, the material. If you got an order for 500 could you fill that? Yes. 
Okay. I talked to the guys in Shapeways. They printed 200,000 pieces for Google once. So it's possible to print 200,000 if I, if I needed to. Also, I had an idea for raising money for people in need right now. I can do auctions, you know, and virtual um, exhibits or like shows with other yeah, designers. that's great. It's a great idea. Sasha, I had another idea, which is, um, you know, a lot of, sales organizations so some of these kind of b2b enterprise sales organizations that have big clients that spend you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars with software uh, everyone is going to be in a scramble to retain their customers and oftentimes um, what they do is they might send a gift it might be like a food basket or a you know something clever and unique but this could be the perfect kind of thing where it's a little bit more personalized and a little bit more fun that sales organizations can stand to retain their clients. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great idea. idea. You yeah. know, if it was a crown, you could say, we think our clients are kings or something. I mean, I'm, you're a marketer. You could come up with something better than that. <laughs> Ken, you could come up with something amazing, too. That's that. Yeah. Because I would love to have one of those. I just wear it around my house. <laughs> I have clients who don't do that. your collection of crowns. Is that it? <laughs> Whenever I do get to wear a tiara, I would like to before I die. Yeah. Women's groups would love it, too. I'm, you know. You've, you've heard of the red hat people, right? So. Yeah, this is much cooler. <laughs> These are much awesome. Cooler. And how can viewers find you? Uh, where can they, where the, where can they oh, reach you? I'm on all of the social media. Uh, and my handle is Kova by Sasha. It's K-O-V-A-B-Y-S-A-S-C-H-A. And the website is the same, Kova by Sasha. And Kova, when I created the, the company, I took four letters of my last maiden name. And it turned out to be uh, hat in Hebrew. And I had no idea. <laughs> so it's a Kova by Sasha. It's a perfect, perfect uh a perfect storm so excellent <laughs> and dave you're dave at dave partners right yeah you can find me at davepartners.com or davecarvahall.com okay good. great so this has been the remote version of passage to profit the inventor show it's been being taped on zoom and richard and i are at gearheart law and everybody else is sequestered at home because we are quarantined and everybody is being very good about acknowledging the quarantine. But the show must go on. <laughs> show must go on. But the show must go on. And so we're, we're, we're delighted that we were able to share uh, our inventors and entrepreneurs and experts with you today. And uh, So thank you everybody for doing this. It was an experiment. We appreciate it.